Amy, on this podcast, we try to always offer useful takeaways. And if you learn nothing else from us, learn this useful parenting lesson by Pampers Cruisers 360. Pampers Cruisers 360 are the ultimate parent hack, the best diaper to use as soon as your baby starts standing or walking. Instead of ordinary diaper tabs, they have a unique 360-degree stretchy waistband that moves with your wild child. Pampers Cruisers 360 makes it so easy to change your baby. Who probably doesn't stop moving just because they need a diaper changed? Just slide on to apply and away they go. And fear not, parents. Pampers Cruisers 360 offers an up to 100% leak-free fit, and they just got even better with a new blowout barrier. Need we say more? For Trusted Protection Trust Pampers, the number one pediatrician-recommended brand. Download the Pampers Club app today and earn Pampers cash. Then redeem your Pampers cash for exclusive Pampers coupons, savings, and rewards. Only redeemable via Pampers Club. Pampers cash has no cash value. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Fresh Take from What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the Face of Motherhood. This is Margaret. And this is Amy. And today we're talking to Anya Kamenetz. She's an education correspondent for NPR, where she also hosts a podcast on parenting called Life Kit for Parents, which offers research-based strategies for real issues families face. Kamenetz is the author of several acclaimed books on learning and the future, including The Art of Screen Time, How Your Family Can Balance Digital Media and Real Life, and The Test, Why Our Schools Are Obsessed with Standardized Testing, But You Don't Have to Be. Anya's latest book is The Stolen Year, How COVID Changed Children's Lives and Where We Go Now, which is what we'll be discussing today. Anya lives in Brooklyn, New York with her husband and two daughters. Welcome, Anya. Thanks so much for having me. We've spent a lot of time with our listeners over the past two, almost two and a half years talking about this incredible moment that all of us are in as parents. And we've spent a lot of time, as we should, I think, coping, getting one another through it, telling ourselves that this is going to be okay, that we're going to survive this, that our kids will survive this, that there are silver linings, that it's going to be okay, that kids are resilient. But now I guess that we're kind of coming to the other side of this. I think it is important to kind of take stock of what this has cost our children. So what brought you to write this book? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I'm hoping that this is the moment that we really start to look honestly at what the pandemic has done to kids and to families. Because if not now, I'm worried it's going to get buried forever. So when the pandemic started, I was right here in my like tiny home office. I had two kids at home. They were three and eight at the time. We were very lucky to have part-time childcare with a neighbor. We were in a bubble with a neighbor who was willing to step in a few hours a day. So we weren't totally, you know, just buried with two kids and two full-time jobs. But I was an education correspondent for NPR at the time. I had the privilege of the vantage point and I knew the research to say that, uh-oh, when you close schools, it's a really big deal. You know, kids rely on schools for so many things. It's a huge lifeline. And not just our kids who you know, have loving families and and warm, stable houses, but way too many kids in America that rely on school to eat and to have a safe adult and to have even access to healthcare. And so I knew it was going to be a huge deal. I knew it was going to be hugely unequal. And so I was really on the front line of history and knowing, oh my gosh, I've got to document this. I've got to turn a clear eye on what this pandemic is going to do to kids. For many people, they saw the shutting of schools as an inconvenience to the parents. The fact that you had to help them somehow learn algebra that you don't understand how to do and that you had to make all their meals. But there's a lot 
more consequences for kids than just for the parents, which I think we were kind of focused on as parents ourselves. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I think, you know, it just kind of speaks to the silos that we live in in this country, right? So Mm -hmm. in my book, I really break it down. I start with hunger because the school meals program is the second largest federal hunger program after food stamps. And when they switched to handing out sandwiches in parking lots, it didn't work. And a lot of kids went hungry. They went hungry in April and May 2020. Did it not work because people just didn't go? Did it not work because those are insufficient for their needs? It didn't have the same efficacy because a school might be half a mile away, but you might be home with your kids all day and the buses aren't running or you don't have access to a car. Or maybe you're working at an essential job, so you can't leave your job at noon and walk over and get those meals. So the amount of food, this is in a, a study in a few cities, it dropped by 66% how much food they were actually giving out in large cities. And that was true in the spring. It was also true in the fall. Now, the federal government did hand out money to compensate for that. It just took a few months and people don't eat in months, they eat in weeks. So there was a huge spike in child hunger and and in family hunger as well. So that's just one. I mean, that's step one, right? And I go through the consequences to kids. You know, not every kid had a parent at home with them. Many people had essential jobs and they went out to work. And if they couldn't, if their daycare center shut down, then they were stuck. And so there were kids home alone. I talked to a mother of a child who wandered out of their home, a seven-year-old child, and was shot in a vacant building. Luckily, he survived, but it could have been so much worse. And she was a mother of eight children who worked at a homeless shelter to make ends meet and had no way of staying home and no daycare centers and no schools. So, you know, that's a reality in way too many places today. You know, that's the material part, right? And then I get into the kids with special needs. I mean, that cuts across all class lines. Kids with disabilities, vast majority really weren't getting the services that they were entitled to or that they needed in the remote setting. So that was a huge dilemma. And then, of course, the mental health issues that we all kind of experienced, but really cut acutely across uh, kids in particular. I want to break each of those different things down because I think they're all worth considering. And But I want to start with your title because the book is called The Stolen Year. It's not called The Lost Year. And I know that that is a very a concrete decision on your part. Can you talk about that? Yeah, thank you so much, Amy. So, you know, I had the last year kind of as an idea of a name. And I think that there were a number of people that really gave me feedback on that to say that this, first of all, we shouldn't think of it as something that is in any way a deficit of our kids because it's not something that they deserved or that was, you know, that we should think of that as an adheres to them as a detriment in any way. This is something that adults did. Adults chose to do this. Now, we can argue, and there are arguments about the wisdom of keeping schools closed for so long. It's inarguable that we closed schools much longer than any other rich nation. And we kept them closed, particularly in you know more progressive parts of the country. And that we really failed, essentially, in most places to prioritize children over other needs like businesses. So you saw in Germany and France and the UK that once we'd gone through the initial round of lockdowns, that they would be very explicit and say, restaurants will be closed, bars will be closed, schools are open. <laughs> Not us. <laughs> right. We had the opposite. We had bars, no schools. Right. Applebee's for everyone, but no school. And I mean, dog parks were <laughs> open where playgrounds were shuttered. Like there is just, it goes across the board. So that's where the stolen comes in, because I really want Americans, adults to take a look at themselves and think, how did we let this happen? But you argue in the book that this is stuff that happened like a little bit at a time and then all at once, right? Like they sort of 
some bad faith decisions and some best of intentions sort of decisions were sort of already being made before the pandemic even happened? Like what were sort of the wrong things that were in place before the pandemic hit? I think that's a fair way of putting it. I mean, you know, it's kind of a round robin of pointing fingers, right? You know that meme where like Spider-Man's pointing fingers at Spider-Man? <laughs> <laughs> and Spider-Man, yes. Yes. <laughs> but like, you know, we created a country where schools are the major social safety net, right? We do not have paid leave. We do not have paid childcare. You know, so we created that system. We got welfare programs. So why were so many families dependent on the school meals? Because we weren't feeding the kids at home. Uh, so in a country like the Netherlands, if they close schools, you don't have kids immediately starving because you already have a system in place to feed children. These are the kinds of like, and then we have, you know, we have this school system that's so anomalous and to, around the world. It's got this local control, which we know has good parts and bad parts to it. But there was no central authority like there were in many countries to say schools must all be open and we're going to make it happen. I mean, certainly we had some political leaders saying, yes, we must open the schools, but they were not backing that up right. with authority to actually say, this is how it should be done. This is a safe way of doing it. And we're all going to march together here. Instead, it was left up to these poor superintendents who really didn't have the expertise or the authority. Right. And then became kind of the front lines in terms of dealing with people and their feelings about it, right? That there was no kind of leadership coming. And so these poor people who signed up to be on the school board were suddenly just getting these waves of from all sides yeah. about what horrible people they were. And they're like, I thought I was just going to like help make my kids school a little bit better. Yeah. I mean, all of the biggest cities in the country, their superintendents left during the pandemic year. It's a pretty clear statement that mm. it became an impossible job. And the same thing with the school board. I'm surprised anybody wants to run for a school board in America at this point. Yeah. We're talking to Anya Kamenetz. She is the author of the new book, The Stolen Year. And we'll be right back. Margaret, exciting news. I am about to have a new baby nephew. And believe it or not, this will be my 13th nephew. Amy, you're ready to give up your amateur status. You're a pro aunt at this <laughs> yes. point. Our family has seen a lot of babies. And as soon as they start standing or walking, I send them all a whole lot of Pampers Cruisers 360. Pampers Cruisers 360 don't have ordinary diaper tabs. Instead, they have a unique 360 degree stretchy waistband that moves with your newly mobile little one. Pampers Cruisers 360 offer a gap-free fit that is up to 100% leak-proof, crucial once your baby is quite literally up and at them. And that gap-free fit helps prevent your baby from taking off their diaper, a habit you do not want them to get into. You can say that again. And Pampers Cruisers 360 just got even better with a new blowout barrier. Need we even elaborate on the need for that, friends? For trusted protection, trust Pampers, the number one pediatrician recommended brand. Download the Pampers Club app today and earn Pampers cash. Then redeem your Pampers cash for exclusive Pampers coupon savings and rewards. Only redeemable via Pampers Club. Pampers cash has no cash value. Amy, you know me well enough to know that my daily power breakfast is toast with peanut butter on top. Toast with peanut butter. It's also, by the way, one of my favorite power breakfasts. So we agree on that thing. We were recently together and we shared some toast with peanut butter. And I'm going to tell you, we used Hero Bread. It adds even more protein and fiber to that combo without adding any more sugar. Hero Bread has remade the carby, empty calorie bread products into versions that include no net carbs, zero gram sugar, and fewer calories, plus more protein and fiber. 
while still being super fluffy and delicious. I was not sure that that particular combination was going to be possible, but Hero Bread has figured it out. Yeah, this is one I'm glad they let us try. It's like, it really tastes good. I've been trying to add more protein to my diet, and I would have thought that a hamburger rolls was not the place to do that, Amy. <laughs> but all of Hero Bread's products, from rolls to tortillas to croissants, we please, offer protein and fiber, zero to one grams of net carbs, and zero grams of sugar. Start your Hero Bread bundle on their website and get 10% off your order. Go to Hero.co and use the code MOTHERHOOD at checkout. I like this bread, people. It's H-E-R-O dot C-O and code MOTHERHOOD for 10% off your order of Hero Bread. Okay, Anya, let's talk about the shift to remote learning in particular. Less from, you know, a safety point of view and more from a learning point of view. How did that And what did that steal from our kids? So I had a unique perspective on this because I actually had been covering the remote learning transition for over 10 years, Hmm. focusing on the higher ed space, right? Because that is where it focused because the conventional wisdom and the common wisdom before 2020 was that you really was very hard to do quality online learning with children that were not, you know, at college level or high school level. And there are very good reasons for this. I mean, children are, they start out as completely physical, tactile learners exploring the world around them. And they gradually gain the ability to do more abstract learning and more sit down learning, but it's always more optimal for them to be in a space, interacting, using their bodies, having multiple learning modalities and in a social environment. I mean, kids are social. They learn not only from their teachers or from their peers. And so when you strip all of that away and you put it into a 2D environment, it is so detrimental. And I think that we, you know, we saw all of the challenges with it. We certainly saw kids who, you know, developed a form of ADD and were really, you know, just found it impossible to attend to online learning. We also saw kids that were despondent. So this is something I learned. I got cold called throughout the pandemic year by clinicians who work with children just to tell me, like, as a journalist, please cover this. Mm-hmm. The kids are not okay. Right. Yeah. And specifically on the issue of remote learning, saying, you know, kids without that social reinforcement and without the sociality of school were just despondent. They lost their reason for being in the world because it just was like they're doing homework all day. It's so quiet. They're totally alone. Their teachers just like screen talking to them and they can't comply. It's not just that they don't want to comply. It's that they can't really comply because we're asking them to do something that's not developmentally appropriate. And I saw from my end watching it as a parent that teachers who I know I've been in their classrooms and they're very like high five. Hey God, you know, they have a fun classroom environment and they're a lot of their learning is done through storytelling and visuals and they suddenly became completely different teachers themselves online because now they're doing crowd control with 20 boxes where it's like, no, 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 don't put your cat away. We don't want to see your cat. We're talking about and that their whole style of learning fell away and learning became just joyless and kind of, right, can I cram any knowledge through this screen while screaming at four different kids who are like eating sandwiches and showing off their dogs? And it just, it all fell apart. It didn't work. And online learning was never meant to be 22 kids on camera with one teacher. It's insane. That's exactly right. And I I mean, that's very important that you point that out because the disconnect between the effort that teachers were putting forward and what students were actually getting on the other side led to so much resentment on both sides and so much burnout. 
Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And then the next step was, okay, so now we're going to do something where eight kids are home because they have to be because their parents need them to be whatever. And 12 kids are in the classroom and the teacher is going to teach to both at once. They're going to run two lesson plans. I mean, even more, let's make this even more impossible. That didn't go great. Right. That was also not great. Yeah. One of the teachers I talked to described that as juggling with knives. (laughs) And one of the surveys that I found said that parents whose kids were in hybrid, where they were sometimes at home and sometimes at school, they were more worried even than the remote parents about how far behind their kids were because it was so disjointed. There was no way to continue a common thread between the the in-school days and the out-of-school days. What does the research show about on the other side of this? Are we starting to see, yes, kids are six months behind, two months behind? What are we finding out? Oh, my God. The missed learning is massive. I mean, the the gaps are massive and they're just as you'd expect. So the longer the kids spent time at home, the more behind they are where you'd expect. The gaps are larger among groups that are already disadvantaged, groups that are low income, English language learners. It's major. African-American kids. It's major. So that, you know, it follows existing inequities and it's huge. I mean, the conventional wisdom before Before the pandemic, there was research on school stoppages and what that did to learning. And one of the biggest was in New Orleans after Katrina, public schools were closed down for for months. And most of the kids enrolled in other schools elsewhere, but they all had gaps in learning, ranging from a few weeks to a few months. And it took two years for those kids to resume their trajectory that you would expect, two years of learning. But the problem that we're in now is that, you know, so you would expect to start to see by the end of this coming school year that kids would quote unquote catch up. However, this past school year, I don't know if you guys noticed, Omicron, quarantines, absenteeism, it wasn't a recovery year. It wasn't an all else equal year. We definitely noticed for the record, we did. (laughs) (laughs) Like if it hadn't been for the 2020 school year, and the 2021 school year, the 2022 school year would have been the worst school year. Oh, good point. And I think sometimes when we talk about inequities, it feels sort of like, oh, yes, inequities. You know, it's it's a thing that we understand exists in our universe. But I feel like in COVID, I have a child who has special educational needs, an IEP, who needed, who has an aide at school who makes sure that he stays focused during his learning. That person became me, and my husband was working full-time. I have a job that allows me to be very flexible with my time, but I had to just say for my two other kids, you're on your own, and however you fall behind is however you fall behind. Now, if I had more resources, might I have tried to hire somebody to come in and fill that role? Maybe I would have, but my children fell more behind, A, because we didn't have another person helping, which many people chose to do who had the resources to do. And I had one kid who was pulling many of our familial resources. So we have an inequity in our home. And then we have an inequity with the people who are getting tutors and making sure and have whatever resources they need to keep their kids marching forward. And I'm in the top, like, I don't know what percent, elite percent of people dealing with this. And so inequities is not just sort of a word I want us to use as like, oh yeah, inequities. You, The tangible pull on this is so clear. And I hope that for people we always say like, don't miss these lessons of the pandemic to really see what it looks like for kids who are not getting any extra help, who are outside of systems of support that you may have 
available to you, that those inequities, they weren't made by COVID, but they were highlighted so much by COVID and that people should not look away from them. I love that you said that. That's really putting your thumb on the pulse of what I'm trying to do with this book, because we have an opportunity at this moment to understand that all of our destinies are bound up together. Yes. You know, your kids all matter equally. And so do the kids on the block. And rather than we get pushed into thinking about education as a competition, competition for resources, competition for achievement, and there's a brass ring at the top of it, you know, but, you know, actually all of these kids are our future of America, right? They're going to be doing the work. They're going to be doing the care. They're going to be the citizens. And so if we don't figure out a way to redress all of this with equity, it's going to harm every single one of us in the very concrete way, right? Like if you have your kid in a public school classroom and it's like, maybe my kid did fine, you know, when she started kindergarten, but all these other kids had these huge behavioral gaps and huge developmental gaps and they're competing for the teacher's attention, right? You know, because of what happened in the pandemic. So we need to make sure that everybody gets the resources that they need so that this is still a viable option to use public education because the teachers are now dealing with kids that are at, so many different developmental levels and have so many needs. They need those resources. And by the way, the federal government provided resources. There's money out there uh, that schools are supposed to be using to redress the harms of the pandemic. And it doesn't run out for another until 2024, but it takes some agitation. A lot of the districts haven't spent that money because they are concerned about things such as if we raise our staff salaries, we will have to pay for that after the federal money goes away. And so sometimes that gets stuck in a bureaucratic logjam. New York City's public schools just announced just this week that they're cutting teachers, that music programs, things like that. And I couldn't believe in the post-pandemic time that this is a time to cut teachers. It doesn't seem possible. I mean, the way that we handled the schools in the pandemic is causing a death spiral right now because students have fled urban public schools. The New York City is down, way down in enrollment. And the budget cuts are responding to that. And obviously... I don't feel it's like it's a place of the time. I mean, I'm not here to make political recommendations, but it feels like a huge blow considering all the things that schools need to do for the kids that are still there. But, you know, in the reality world, school enrollment determines school budgets. And so it's really, really hard to say, hey, come back and try our public school again. We got less resources than before. (laughs) (laughs) Now with fewer teachers. Yes. (laughs) All new. Let's take a break and we'll talk when we get back about where we are going with policies and what we've learned. More and more you hear about the importance of electrolytes as part of staying hydrated because you need the sodium and the potassium, not just the water. And whether you're looking to hydrate during a workout, while traveling, or at the end of a long night, Sports Research Hydrate Electrolytes have got you covered with over 65 trace minerals, 7 essential vitamins, and coconut water powder. Crisp and refreshing and without any sugar, this is hydration powered by Sports Research. They're little packets you can just grab and take with you to mix into your water bottle on the go. My favorite flavor so far, Amy, gotta be the cherry pomegranate. Interesting. My high schooler likes the lemon lime, and she keeps a few handy in her backpack for days that she has practiced after school. These electrolytes have the sodium and the potassium that you need to go with it in the optimal ratio for daily hydration. 
Visit sportsresearch.com and use code WHATFRESH at checkout for 50% off your purchase of Hydrate. That's sportsresearch, S-P-O-R-T-S-R-E-S-E-A-R-C-H, sportsresearch.com and use code WHATFRESH for 50% off your Hydrate electrolytes order. Hello, Hellions. You know we listen to a lot of podcasts that aren't our own, and today we want to tell you about a podcast that really speaks to us and will speak to any parent of a child with special education needs. The podcast is called Understood Explains. This season of the show is hosted by teacher and special education expert Juliana Ortube, and it's all about how to navigate individual education plans, also known as IEPs. The latest season of Understood Explains covers topics like how to tell if your child needs an IEP, and it busts common myths about special education. One of my kids has an IEP, and I found this podcast so validating and so helpful. I feel better equipped to advocate for my child's educational needs now. This podcast is helpful for parents in many different situations, whether your child already has an IEP or you're just starting to wonder if they might need extra support in the classroom. Juliana has content for kids of all ages and for kids who are learning English as an additional language as well. To listen to Understood Explains, search for Understood Explains in your podcast app. That's Understood Explains. Okay, so we started to talk a little bit before the break about we kind of understand we've all been through this together, what the problems are. As we like to say on the podcast all the time, we understand the problem. Okay, now let's start to talk a little bit about where you see the future and how is it at the policy level? Is it at the school level? Is it at the personal level? Where is change based on these things that we've learned going to come from? Yeah, I think that's a great question. So, you know, during the pandemic, it was dangled in front of us like a brass ring, like Biden created a package of policies that essentially would have put us in the middle of the pack instead of at the bottom when it comes to family friendliness, as far as rich countries go. So paid leave, you know, universal preschool, you know, the child tax credit to kind of have a little money in the pockets of families. So, you know, that package is languishing. There's some been some efforts to bring parts of it back to the Senate. So I don't think it's totally dead. I think there's a new policy conversation going on at the federal level. I think the area where there's the biggest reason for hope to me is honestly mental health, because there's such a level of awareness like we've never seen before of the crisis in kids' mental health, which does predate the pandemic. And the crisis in kids' mental health is accompanied by a huge lack of just practitioners and beds, right? So these are very concrete issues. Now, fascinatingly, as part of the um, gun reform package, right, we just passed a whole new tranche of mental health funding for children in Congress, children in schools. And so I think there's really an opportunity. And for people who are in that field, they're kind of saying, yes, like this is our time. We've got to train people, build up a pipeline. We've got to raise this awareness of mental health as a public health issue. And there's so much, you know, the interesting thing about mental health versus like physical health is like, when people have to deal with like limping, right? You don't have a bunch of people saying like, oh, you're, you're not limping. You're fine. Like, just walk it off or like- Get over it. I'm afraid to tell people that I'm limping. So I'll just, you know, wear no shoes for a while and hope it goes away. We have that stigma and that lack of conversation, which I feel like really changed during the pandemic. Mm-hmm. I heard so many more families talk about their kids' mental health and share these stories and things that used to be in whispers are now being talked about out loud. And I feel like that's all to the good. And when you say mental health, it's another term that like we hear a lot. Yeah. How does that manifest? Is that psychologists in schools? Is that hospital programs? I mean, if our 
children in our world, in our home are, are having mental health struggles. This money that's for quote unquote mental health, it feels sort of like, is that how does that actually filter down and is something that we see in our day to day lives? Yeah, that's a really important question. So the funding can be used to hire school counselors and school psychologists. Okay. It can be used to form partnerships with local organizations to do referrals in case someone needs you know, generalized therapy outside of what a school counselor can offer. It also can be used for training and wellness within the schools. And so mm. when approach that I found was really impressive. I talked to a lot of children's bereavement experts during the pandemic, because we have to remember, right, that the pandemic orphaned and bereaved like over 200,000 children in the United States. Mm. And they sort of really talked about the benefit actually of having just people be aware within the school setting. So teachers understanding the signs, understanding what to look for, how to do referrals and how to be sensitive to kids' states of mental well-being kind of as the first responders. So it really is at all of those levels. And obviously we're going to need, I think, I don't know how much this particular federal gun safety package addresses this, but I know that there's approaches to increase funding at the state level because state mental health agencies don't typically have designation for children. They're kind of competing for already scarce resources. Right. So just agitating for that. I think it's going to take more public pressure, honestly, to expand that. But just the conversations. It's one of those drill downs I find really interesting because people do talk about it in the context of school shootings, like, well, mental health. And it's like, well, there's no door that's marked mental health and you walk through it. And on the other side, everything's fine. It's a very complicated picture of how you get counselors to the right people. And then if you have a counselor who needs to refer that kid out somewhere and there's no bed and there's no doctor and there's nothing else available, it's not like the mental health box will be delivered to your school and you will open it and all of your problems will be solved. It's a very complex web. Yes, that's very true. I do find I've delved into a little bit of the research of like, you know, we're talking about school shootings in particular. One of the big deciding factors in prevention is caring, trusting relationships between adults and children within a school. Mm. So something as simple as like, you know, if the child answers in the affirmative, like there is an adult at school who cares about me that I trust that can lower the level of you know danger in a school and the potential for all kinds of violence, interpersonal violence, bullying. That's really interesting. Right? And it, it has to do also with like, because most of these kids who are really troubled, they tell somebody, they send hints, they post things. So the question is, is someone see that, do they trust someone at school to come to them to tell them? So that is encouraging that the fact that there are people who are trained in the building and that there might be extra people in the building whose job it is to be that person for people actually has an effect. It's not just sort of smile more posters going up in the hallways or something that feels very disconnected from the problem. It takes a commitment to change a school culture in that way. I've seen it happen through coordinated effort and is in every doll in the building effort. That's encouraging. Can we talk a little bit about resilience as a sort of nice idea that is also maybe sort of a cop out for adults as we come out of this pandemic, that I'm talking about the majority of children who aren't showing maybe profound distress, but who have gone through something traumatic, all of us have. And to say, well, kids are resilient and kids will be fine. It's skipping something that they are owed, right? So what do we do for every kid coming out of this? Yeah, I think that's beautifully put. I think that there's a fine line that parents walk between kind of, you know, expecting your kid to thrive is great. Like the ambient expectation that we're thriving is not a bad one, but make sure that they have those resources to thrive and that it's a safe place to say, I'm not okay. It's okay not to be okay. You know, I interviewed Rick Tedeschi, who's an expert on what is called post-traumatic growth 
So like, we're not just expecting your kids to go back to baseline because they don't, kids don't go backwards, right? They grow and develop and they change every single month and every single year that they're growing up. And so we're expecting them to go forward with this experience integrated and part of their stories. And so part of what we can do is really elicit their memories of the pandemic, help them talk about it, talk about how we responded as a family, how our values as a family helped us respond. What did we learn? You know, what did we start doing during the pandemic that we want to keep doing? So kind of at milestones here, I'm kind of like, well, this is this, you know, second summer since the pandemic started. And remember when we couldn't go to camp and now we can go to camp or remember when we had to wear masks and now we can do this. And that gratitude for the things that come back, I think is, I hope it's encouraging those pathways for my kids to say, you know, I got through something. This is actually something I'm proud of going through. And not because I was unscathed, but because I learned from it and I grew from it. Oh, that's a really good point. Like to be less scathed than other people doesn't mean you did it better, right? (laughs) That's right. There's so many good resources in this book, but it also, I really found it gave me permission to take a moment and say, this really was bad. You know, I've had incidents that happens with my kids. We had a specific incident that was extremely traumatic in our school, in our town, and we had counselors come in and help us through it. And there was just this acknowledgement of like, we all are supposed to stop what we're doing and take time to recover from this thing that has happened. And it, that allowance was huge because I feel like as moms, sometimes we feel like, well, they don't seem to be thinking about it. Let's just keep going and not, I don't, what's the day that I want to, on top of packing the swimsuits and getting the sunscreen, do I want to stop and be like, how are we doing with the pandemic, guys? Like, there's never that day. But I think that this book really gives you permission to say, oh, yeah, this was a big deal. And like, it's okay to have these conversations. And my kids probably want to have these conversations. It's funny. I experienced this myself just recording the audiobook a couple of weeks ago. And just taking myself through the timeline and being like, oh my God, like, that was hard. That was hard. That was really hard. And, you know, it was so intense. And sometimes it becomes like a blur. So I think there's, yeah, there's a lot to that. And I really do hope that it is an opportunity for people to reflect. I hope that people read it, you know, with friends in book groups where they can have those conversations about, because a lot of times I feel like we did have revelations, we had realizations during the pandemic. It was a chance to think about what's really important to us in our lives. That's what emergencies give us. And so just to revisit that alone, hopefully will be helpful. That's a great idea. This would be a great book club book to sit around and discuss what happened with you. It would be a great opportunity to process it with friends. We've been talking to Anya Kamenetz. Her new book is The Stolen Year, How COVID Changed Children's Lives and Where We Go Now. So tell us, Anya, where we can find you and your work. Yeah, you can find me on Twitter at Anya1Anya. My NPR contributions are on npr.org. And I hope you'll visit my website, anyakamenetz.net, for all of the book tour information and the other uh, stuff as the book comes out. Great. And we will link to all of those places in our show notes so you can find them easily. And Anya, thanks so much for talking to us today. This was a great conversation. Thank you so much for having me. I really enjoyed it. Thanks, Anya. Feel like you're the martyr in your family? You're not alone. Hey, this is Joanne. And Brie. And we're from the No Guilt Mom podcast. Brie, we talk to a lot of moms. Yeah, we sure do. And if you're a mom who has a to-do list that is so massive that you get overwhelmed and you shut down, 
Or if you fall into the habit of doing everything for everyone and don't know how to change it, we can help you become a no-guilt mom. We're going to take you from family martyr to family model. That's role model so that you role model the behavior that you want to see out of your kids. You're going to go from being tired and overwhelmed to energized and guilt Every week, you'll get actionable strategies that you can implement right away from the experts that we interview and from us. We also have a whole lot of fun. So check out the No Get Mom podcast everywhere you listen to your favorite shows. If you're a parent, I invite you to join us at the Mindful Mama podcast, where it's all about becoming a less irritable, more joyful parent. With sometimes hilarious and always thought-provoking experts and friends, at Mindful Mama, we know that you cannot give what you do not have. And when you have calm and peace within, then you can give it to your children. I'm Hunter Clark-Fields, and I can't wait to see you there. Listen in to the Mindful Mama podcast.